Waco Convenience Store Clerk Melissa Northrup was not the first woman to go missing along the Interstate 35 corridor. Women started disappearing and bodies started showing up just three days after convicted triple killer Kenneth Allen McDuff walked out of prison on parole. Local police either missed or ignored clues that could have tied McDuff to their unsolved cases. Now, a U.S. Marshal Service posse running at full gallop finds more of McDuff's victims. A law enforcement source tipped me that the U.S. Marshal suspected Kenneth McDuff had kidnapped Melissa Northrup from a Waco convenience store on March 1st of 1992. McDuff's name was no stranger to me, just as it wasn't to the U.S. Marshals. As you may recall from the earlier episodes, I broke a story about the parole of former death row inmates, including McDuff, in April of 1991. I broadcast that TV report eight months before Melissa Northrup, the pregnant mother of two children, vanished. No one in the parole system took note or seemed to care. Two days after walking out of prison in October of 1989, women's bodies started showing up just as Sheriff Larry Pamplin had predicted. McDuff was still the same cold-blooded, sexually deranged killer described by prosecutors in his 1966 murder trial. Ted Lyon, the chairman of the Criminal Justice Committee, called hearings in the wake of my news report in 1991 Lyon was outraged about the release of Leonardo Lopez, who had executed three sheriff's deputies in Dallas. Little did we know at the time that, as Lyon was raking parole board members over the coals, McDuff's killing spree was in full swing. McDuff got out on parole and then he committed more serial murders. And he was in for committing murder of women. And he would take them as you know, out in the country or wherever he could and rape them and then murder them. And so I began this investigation, and we found out that the parole system, not only were they putting them in the front and letting them out of the back, but the parole board, was there were some corrupt people on that board, and they were taking money for getting people out. It was just a bad system. It was a very bad system indeed for 21-year-old Regina Moore and countless other women. After I reported that McDuff was now the suspect in Melissa Northrop's abduction, Moore's mother called me. She blurted out, I saw the man who murdered my daughter in your TV story last night. I hightailed it to Waco with my camera crew. We found Ms. Moore's mother, Barbara Carpenter, waiting on tables at a truck stop. Carpenter sadly told me that her missing daughter supported her drug habit as a sex worker. She was last seen alive in a red pickup truck driven by parole triple killer Kenneth McDuff. A few days earlier, McDuff ran a Waco police roadblock with Brenda Thompson, another sex worker inside. She was seen screaming and kicking the windshield. Waco police have never explained why they did not give chase and apprehend McDuff. Carpenter says the police brushed her off, so she and her husband went to McDuff's dormitory at the Texas State Technical College in Waco. McDuff was supposedly attending a state-funded machinist course there for ex-cons. I accompanied Miss Carpenter and her husband back to the dormitory where McDuff lived. 
In the parking lot, they pointed to where they had seen McDuff's red pickup truck parked with a broken windshield. Students were too afraid to talk to me on camera about McDuff. One student nervously told me that McDuff was always trying to get him to help rob the convenience store where Melissa Northrup worked. The carpenters confronted McDuff in his dorm room. He jumped back and threw up his hands, saying, Don't try to pin this on me. Miss Carpenter said McDuff's guilt washed over her at that moment. She knew in her heart that Kenneth McDuff had murdered her daughter. That confrontation occurred five months before McDuff kidnapped Melissa Northrup. Ms. Carpenter believes the young mother would still be alive if the police had only taken her daughter's disappearance seriously. Dan Stoltz, the marshal who led the nationwide manhunt for McDuff, told me he ran into similar indifference. Barbara Carpenter, and I did a story with her, but you know what she told me? She said, I've been to the Waco police and I've been everywhere the only people that listen to me are the marshals. Is it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I heard that time and time again. She told me that. When yeah. I when I left after the my first initial mm-hmm. visit there at the Waco office, I was there three days. I left back to to my office in Houston. My report read that uh, these guys need help. They're on to something big. They know what they're doing, and nobody's listening. Why don't you think the local police did not listen, did not pursue this? Was it because they just thought these were prostitutes? And I sure hope not, because I don't care what line of work you're in, you're still a human being, and you deserve the protection. You're, you're, you're the, 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 I consider us sheepdogs, and we got to protect our flock. And I don't care what type of work you're in. We can't let the ugly prey on the weak. Mm-hmm. And I take that very personal. Um, I don't know why the other law enforcement didn't listen to them when, when the bell was rang. Um, I sure did. I, I listened, and I gave them all the resources that we needed to, to lead the charge and get this done. McDuff picked up Regina Moore and Brenda Thompson in an area of Waco called The Cut. It was an open-air market for drugs and sex near Baylor University in the heart of the Bible Belt. The cut was the first place that Marshal Parnell McNamara went to look for McDuff. It was a place called The Cut. There was two or three streets. Uh, the two main streets was Faulkner and Seeley. And you could go over there any time of day, but mainly at night. Girls walking the street... Uh, you've heard the term a streetwalker. Well, that is a perfect prime example of a streetwalker uh, walking up and down these dark streets. Um, young girls, uh, middle-aged girls, uh, most of them high on crack or meth and just uh, looking for their next hit. And uh, men driving up, yeah. getting, you know, but very easy prey for McDuff in a, as a serial killer. They would get in the car with McDuff. A lot of them never came back. Some of them are still missing to this day that have never been found, never a trace of them, never a call back to their friends. Uh, they just vanished last seen with McDuff. And so it was, uh, they were so easy prey because, you know, they were looking, uh, 
for somebody like Macduff not to kill him, but looking for a John, and they would get in the car with him, and a lot of times it was their last ride. Macduff didn't care about his victim's occupation. He preferred petite females. Macduff drove hundreds of miles searching for them. During December of 1991, Macduff cruised around the state capitol, just a few blocks from where Senator Lyon had held his hearings about Macduff's release on parole eight months earlier. Macduff and his accomplice, Alva Hank Worley, kidnapped 28-year-old Colleen Reed in plain sight shortly after Christmas of 1991. She was an accountant. She was a beautiful, sweet person. Uh, she had been to church that night and had stopped to wash her new sports car and this guy who turned out to be McDuff came into the wash bay, grabbed her by the throat, drug her off, threw her in his car, and he and a guy named Alva Hank Worley took her off into the dark and just terrorized her and brutalized her and eventually killed her. McDuff and Worley drove a two-door tan 1985 Thunderbird, just like the one that would be found two months later near the site of Melissa Northrop's kidnapping. They were cruising up and down the I-35 corridor from Austin to Temple to Waco up to Dallas. I think you have described it in past a broadcast as like a shark circling its prey. And I never will forget how you described that. I thought that is the most perfect analogy of Macduff, just like he did Melissa uh, uh Northrop and yeah. just like he did um, Colleen Reed. I always thought he had eyes like a shark, cold and that sort of calculating predator just looking for an opportunity to kill. Absolutely. And if you looked at them one on one, there was nothing behind them. They would glare at you. Mm-hmm. It was like this SOB had no soul, plain and simple. And uh, I uh, used to say that he struck me as pure Old Testament evil. Absolutely. He was a lot the, of people can't understand that. Uh, he was the devil himself. I mean, he was, uh, he was the epitome of a cold-hearted, heartless, evil, mm-hmm. dirty son of a bitch. Macduff kidnapped Colleen Reed in Austin. Then he kidnapped Melissa Northrop in Waco. 100 miles separates the two cities on Interstate 35, but it was as if the two crimes occurred in different countries. Months passed before the different police jurisdictions realized that the same person committed both kidnappings. The three-man posse of the McNamara brothers and Bill Johnston made the connection to McDuff. Well, we... We um, had a break in that there was a guy that ran with McDuff. He was a federal fugitive, or he was a federal parolee and one-eyed Jackie Pierce, uh, one-eyed Jack. And we talked to a girl about midnight one night in Harker Heights, Texas. She told us that McDuff had, in fact, the first, Strangely, the first thing she said when she realized who he were was she said, this is about the girl in Austin, isn't it? Which was out of the blue. We'd never had a person act like there was a connection other than our, in our minds based on the 
thin, thin evidence we had. And you knew about Austin at this time. We knew time. about Austin. Did you suspect him in it? Or? Right. But, well, as Mike and I, as Parnell was laying back sleeping in Bigfoot uh, late one night, um, Mike and I had a logic uh, test, which was, I said to him, um, so how many serial killers do you think there might uh, be in Texas? It might have been in Texas last year. Okay, let's say, for fun, let's say 10. It's probably not 10, but let's say 10. Okay, how many were in Austin, happened to be in Austin in December, the same time frame where Colleen Reed was? Okay, let's, let's just say three of them. How many were driving a tan Thunderbird? And that's silly. That's a silly logic play, but it kind of works. So when you know, and McDuff's car was a very unique, it was a, it was a very unpopular, ugly Thunderbird year. And uh, we knew that it was the same exact model in an area where we had him uh, located in Austin or had, had knew he was. So anyhow, so we we believe that McDowell was responsible for Colleen Reed's case. So the first thing this woman blurts out is, "This is you must be here about the so the girl from in Austin." And your reaction is, "May we talk to you for a while? Invite us to her house, and we spent a couple of hours, ultimately learning that one-eyed Jack Pierce, who was a multi-time convicted person." Uh, had been running with McDuff, had been in Austin with McDuff, and was in Austin with McDuff in December of that year. And Sandy was spooked about McDuff enough and drew enough conclusions from what Jackie Pierce told her that McDuff may have done something in Austin regarding a girl. That led to us identifying Jackie Pierce as having been with McDuff. I asked, uh, Pierce had failed to appear for his probation office or parole office. I asked him to please get a warrant if that was a violation. They did. Armed with an arrest warrant, Johnston, the U.S. Marshals, and the Dallas SWAT team raided the place where the ex-con known as One-Eyed Jack, a.k.a. Jackie Pierce, was staying. He was a nasty, crazy-looking guy but strangely, he had a spark of, of a conscience. And when we ca- started carrying him back from Dallas in, the, in Bigfoot, he said to Parnell, Parnell, I know you didn't come all this way and do all this just because I walked off from that halfway house. And we said, no. It's about Austin. So he began telling the stories of McDuff in Austin, but importantly put us in the place and in the time frame of Colleen Reed's abduction. Pierce told Johnston that he was with McDuff in Austin a few days before the kidnapping of Colleen Reed from the car wash. Pierce said McDuff was on the hunt for young girls. McDuff uh, liked to get, to grab, to assault, kill young younger women. And his pattern was generally dark-haired women, let's say under 25, um, diminutive for the most part. That was sort of his pattern. And there were two teenage girls, young teenage girls on roller skates in Austin that McDuff trailed like a shark after a 
herring or something <laughs> and trailed them and told Pierce, let's get them and go. And Pierce, because he was really tough, he wasn't a Patsy McDuff, needed a stooge, not a stand-up person. And although Pierce was a horrible criminal, he had some he had some sense of something. And he's told McDuff, I'm not doing that. And they even saw another opportunity and McDuff was going to get a girl to pay phone him. And Pierce said, we're getting out of here. Let's go. Based on Pierce's information, Austin homicide detectives obtained a search warrant for McDuff's distinctive two-door tan 1985 Thunderbird. As you may recall from the second episode, McDuff's car was found abandoned near the convenience store where Melissa Northrop was kidnapped. Her kidnapping occurred two months after Colleen Reed's kidnapping in Austin. Detectives found forensic evidence in the trunk that linked McDuff to Colleen Reed. McDuff's ugly-looking Thunderbird connected him to both kidnappings. And as Sheriff Larry Pamplin had predicted, more bodies turned up. This time, Valencia Joshua, who was missing from Fort Worth. Her body was discovered a stone's throw away from where McDuff was enrolled in state trade school courses for ex-cons. During this uh, time frame, you know, there was other victim found near the technical, technical school campus. Valencia Joshua from Fort Worth, she was found. We were out there for that. Um, that's where I found a grave that McDuff had pre-dug. Uh, near where Valencia Joshua was buried, um, uh, while they were unearthing her, I was wandering around in the little sort of scrub mesquite trees in the area, and I came across a, let's say about a foot and a half, foot and a half to two foot deep, five, six feet long, couple feet wide dig that looks like, looks like a grave. And I hollered at Mike and Parnell, they came to see it. And within a day or two of that, an informant who'd run with McDuff, a, a weird guy that McDuff told a lot of stories to, the guy didn't know if it was true or not. McDuff told him that sometimes he'll pre-dig a grave so he has a place to take a victim when he needs to get there. But anyway, so that was that happened. And then um, other things like that. In other words, there's evidence being gathered, and we were just begin to just look for him. And you were hearing that he was always asking people about or, or commenting that would be a good place to bury a body. Right. It was as if in his mind, when he looked over, looked, you know, driving down the road, looked out at the scenery, he was seeing it as a grave digger. Uh, he more like. Um, some some predatory animals, you know, they'll kill something and they'll drag it someplace behind a tree or something or they'll bury partially bury it to save it for themselves. That was the way he saw uh, geography. Next on True Crime Reporter, we asked the question everyone wants to know about serial killers. Was Kenneth McDuff the product of nature or nurture? The mother had a very negative reputation, and Kenneth MacDuff, there's absolutely nothing good that I know about him and his brother Lonnie. In her mind, Kenneth MacDuff could do absolutely no wrong. I personally think that she made him what he is, or what he was, and up until the time he was executed.
We want to be your favorite podcast and we'll appreciate your review wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you have a suggestion or know of a case we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. To follow our email messages with updates and bonus information from episodes, please join our fan base at truecrimereporter.com. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news production hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs, executive producer, Elizabeth Arnold, producer and operations manager, Grace Woodward, producer, Siler Burr, original music for the Free to Kill series, Blair King, sound design for Free to Kill, Matt Stoker, graphics, Brian David Kerr. You can read more about all of our news team members at truecrimereporter.com.